We live in a dangerous world. I mean, I think the hurricane contribution reminds us of that this morning. And we live in a world full of darkness and danger. We've been called to be disciples of Jesus, bringing good news into lives that are filled with bad news and fear. And as we conclude this series this morning on flow, the flow of God and how to tap into that, there is no ingredient more central to that than faith. Scripture makes it so clear that you cannot walk with God in trials or victories. You cannot walk with the Lord unless you are a person of faith. In your bulletin this morning, there's a sermon outline. And the first thing I want you to write down there this morning is this. Faith involves putting my trust in God, my trust in my God, who loves me even when I don't see the whole picture, right? Sometimes I feel like I've got it all mapped out before me. Generally, I don't. Other times I'm convinced that I have no clue what's going on. Faith involves trusting in God in any and every scenario. Hebrews 11, 1 to 2 says this, Faith, and you're familiar with this passage, I'm sure. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Faith tells me that God is sovereign and God is in control despite what my five physical senses might tell me. God is in control. Now, a committed disciple of Jesus seeks every day to move deeper and deeper into a love relationship with the Lord Jesus. A disciple of Jesus um, seeks to line their life up with the revealed will of God in the Holy Scriptures. They're thirsty for the Scripture, and they're, they're hungry to line their life up so they don't miss anything God has for them. And any sin blockage in their life, because sin blocks us from the flow of God, they want to tear out with God's help. A disciple is someone who is responsive then to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, right? As Paul wrote to a really messed up group of Christians in Galatia, um, he, he, he wrote about this idea of, of lining up with the Spirit. In Galatians 5.25, since we are living by the Spirit let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And so as we remove the blockage of sin through the grace of God, as we move deeper and deeper into fellowship with Christ, we are able to sense the flow of God around us, the promptings of the Spirit, and follow His leading. And this means even when I can't perceive what's going on, even when I don't have access to the master plan of God in my situation, I can trust. So the life of faith involves trusting. The life of faith involves risk, right? I want you to think about that for a second because most people are risk avoiders, um, Faith calls us into a life that involves taking risks. If there's one thing that James makes clear to us in the New Testament, it is that 
A life of faith is not simply a life lived up here with the right doctrine, right? A life of faith is not simply believing the right things. It's, it's not simply believing in God. That's not what faith is. It's not just that. In fact, James makes a pretty, pretty interesting statement. He says, you think faith is just believing in God? Even the demons believe in God. The demons have pretty good theology, James says. So faith has to involve more than simply believing the right things. It involves a marriage of action and trust. Faith involves a unity of my work and my witness. Great little piece here. There's a philosopher named Nicholas Beale and a theoretical physicist named John Polkinghorne, both eminent scholars and, and both believers. And they wrote a book called Questions of Truth, and they explored connections between science, philosophy, and faith. And, and at one point, they used a story to talk about faith. Here goes. A philosopher, a scientist, and a simple man, none of whom could swim, were trapped in a cave with sheer cliff faces all around them. They split up, but the tide kept coming in. Rescuers lowered a rope with a safety harness. The philosopher said, Ah, this looks like a rope, but I might be mistaken. It could be wishful thinking, or it could just be an illusion. So he did not attach himself to the rope, and he was drowned. The scientist said, ah, this is an 11-millimeter polyester rope with a breaking strain of 2,800 kilograms. It conforms to the MR-1081 standard, and then proceeded to give an exhaustive and entirely correct analysis of the rope's physical and chemical properties, but he didn't attach himself to the rope, and he was drowned. The simple man said, look, I'm not sure if it's a rope or if it's a python tail, but it's my only chance. So I'm grabbing it and holding on with my whole life. He was saved. Now, if you're thinking, better to have an enlightened faith than an unenlightened faith, I'm sure, I'm sure Beale and Polkinghorne would agree with you. But the point that they are trying to make is that faith is not merely an intellectual enterprise. It is not merely about believing, but it is belief married to action, belief married to work. Faith does not mean, thank God, it does not mean closing your mind to understanding. It does not mean closing your mind to learning new things. It does mean putting your trust in God even when you don't see the full picture. I don't think that's an easy thing, trusting in God when you don't see the full picture. I don't think that's an easy thing. Not easy for any of us, but that's what faith is. And maybe that's why the Lord felt like he needed to make crystal clear to us that faith is the key to flow, that you simply can't fake Christianity without faith. You simply can't walk with God without it. And so this is the second thing I want you to write down on your outline this morning. I can't walk in the flow of God unless I walk 
in faith. Got a verse here, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 6. And if y'all would help me out, um, shoot this up on the screen, and we will read this one together. Hebrews eleven six. 6. Read this with me. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Pleasing God... Without faith, impossible, an impossibility. Honoring God without the marriage of action and trust not happening. In the spring of, of, of 2004, Isla and I were, were living in Brazil. We're in the middle of, of our work of planting the church there in Rio. And I got an email from a friend of mine here in the Dallas area. And he said, um, and I think he sent it out to several in Latin America. He said, look, there's this young woman, Ashley Ohm. She just graduated from Kansas State. So her wild, she's very happy with her Wildcats, I'm sure, right now. He said, Ashley has it on her heart to work in an orphanage in Latin America. She had it all set up, and it was like Venezuela or Colombia, somewhere up in that part of South America, and it fell through. She still wants to honor where she feels the Lord is leading her, and that is to serve orphans in Latin America. Does anybody know of an opportunity? Well, our, our church in Brazil had just taken on an orphanage there in, in Rio, and we were helping out. Our members were volunteering, and we were painting and doing repairs and all this stuff in this orphanage that was in the Chacrinha, this, this slum area uh, of Rio. And so I said, well, I might know of a place where she could come and she could live and she could work. And so um, then we met Ashley. She moved to Rio. She did not speak Portuguese. Um, so it was, you talk about a step of faith. So she moves into this, this slum area of Rio, doesn't speak the language. And so in the beginning, uh, as she's learning Portuguese, she can't do much more than help the kids get ready for school and, and play with the kids and stuff like that. So she did that as she was learning Portuguese. And she spent a year there working with kids in the, in the Shakininha and, and was an amazing testimonial of faith. And, and when I think about faith, I think about risk. I think about danger. And, and, I, and I think about Ashley. I remember she would, when she would get off two days at the end of the week, she would generally come to our house. And, and Isla probably remembers the first thing that happened when she walked into the dad's house was the de-lousing procedures. Because that orphanage was full of lice. And so Isla would sit with her under the, the fluorescent glare of our kitchen lights and spend at least like an hour picking through Ashley's hair. This is pretty much every weekend. And so I don't know that Isla wants to put this on her resume, but I think in North America, she has probably done in more lice than anybody else. She knows what works. She doesn't know. She knows what doesn't work. But Ashley chose to live the life of a disciple. God, God protected her. God blessed her. In fact, she's, she wrote me. I, I thought of her this week because she wrote Isla and I a note just thanking us for allowing, us, <laughs> allowing her to come work with us. And, and I got to perform her wedding a few years back as she married one of the young Brazilian men at the congregation in Rio, Douglas. And they're, they're still there and they're doing, doing very well. But I think about her and I think about... I think about faith. I think about people who, who walk 
into dangerous places, into risky places, because they know that God is already there. They know that God's presence surrounds them, and they know that they are about the business of the Lord. And and so there is no simple recipe. There are no five easy steps to having a life of faith, but there are principles in Scripture that can orient us to this life of faith. And, And that's why I want to go to Matthew chapter 14 this morning. Right, And as we roll into, into verse 22, Jesus has, performed, has just performed an amazing miracle, right? He has transformed five loaves of bread and two fish into a feast for thousands and thousands of people. And his disciples, the 12, witnessed this. He has sent them on across the Sea of Galilee, and he has told them that he will meet up with them later. Let's pick it up in verse 22. Immediately after this, the, the, the multiplication of the bread and the fish, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble, far away from land. They're in the middle of the lake, for a strong wind had, had risen. They were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I'm here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. And so here are the actors in this drama. First, Jesus of Nazareth, Galilean rabbi, who his disciples are increasingly coming to believe is the the promised one, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's Jesus, and he is taking a leisurely stroll on top of the Sea of Galilee. And then you've got Peter, Simon Peter, fisherman turned disciple, who believes that Jesus can enable him to do something amazing in some pretty dangerous circumstances. And so he throws himself over the side of the boat on top of the lake. Finally, in this drama, we have the 11 other disciples who are, in essence, in this, in this story, the boat people. They simply prefer to stay put in the safety and the security of their boat. 
So let's unpack this a little bit. There are some things in here, some, I mean, these are big, big foundational truths of walking in faith. And let's begin to unpack these this morning. This is on your outline. The first thing, we see this in Peter, is that faith persuades me to step out against my fears. To step out against my fears. Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's I. You can come here. I'm with you. Now, I've never counted this up before, but I've been told that the phrase fear not is one of the most common phrases in all the scripture. In fact, I've been told by commentaries that it occurs around 180 times in the Bible. Like I said, haven't counted, might be off a little bit. But what that tells me is this. God who made us, God who knows us intimately, must know something about the way that we're wired. He must know that you and I are often driven by, controlled by, pushed by our fears. And so over and over again in Scripture, God feels this compelling need to tell his people, fear not, fear not. We have a lot of fears, don't we? We fear failure. We fear blowing it, especially publicly, especially for others to see. We fear what, we fear what other people think about us. We fear what other people might say about us. We fear getting ourselves into an unsafe situation. We fear compromising our security, and that is a, a big one. Like I said, we're risk avoiders. And that translates into all sorts of parts uh, and areas of our lives. I mean, for, some per- for somebody, it might be holding them back from tithing. It might be holding them back from from generosity with their money because they're afraid if they give it away, they're not getting it back. They fear that if they're generous, they might not have enough for themselves. They fear that... You get the idea. And so those who live faithfully don't give fearfully. Those who live faithfully don't give fearfully. Now, real easy thing to do in this story is to kind of Monday morning or Sunday morning quarterback uh, and, and, and look at Peter and say, man, he blew it. What a failure, you know? I mean, come on. Where's the faith, Peter? Um, but I, I don't think that's really called for in this story. I, I really don't. I, I see so much about Peter in this story that, that I like, so much about Peter and the way he responds to Jesus that I want to bring into my life. I mean, it took faith to throw his legs over the side of the boat and to trust that this tumultuous sea could support him. It was, it just kind of helps me to kind of put it on this movie screen in my mind and use my imagination. I mean, Matthew gives us a lot of details in the story. I mean, three o'clock in the morning. So it is, and they're on the sea. It is complete darkness. However, 
They're going up and down, up and down, and their boat is beginning to take on water as this sea, as these waves come over the side of the boat, and they can hear the howling of the wind. And so it, it, is a, it is a dangerous time to be on the sea. It is a dangerous time to be in the middle of, of, of the sea. Peter got out of the boat. He got out of the boat. And as they say, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. Peter got out. Faith persuaded him to get out of the boat. Faith persuaded Ashley to move to Rio and work in the Chacrinha. But there were 11 others who didn't get out of the boat. Peter was the only one who decided to step out against his fears. The boat people, <laughs> the other disciples, missed out on an extraordinary opportunity to exercise their faith and to experience the power, and, and, and the power of God working in their lives. And so, as I think about this story, I think about the times that Jesus invites me, or you think about the times that Jesus invites you into a new place, a strange place, a dangerous place. And his word to you is the same word that he gave to Peter in verse 27. Don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. But let's get real. One thing the Bible never does is tell you that faith insulates you from danger. One thing Scripture never promises is that if you walk in faith, you will not face storms. It certainly doesn't tell us that. And so the second thing I want you to write down under taking the walk of faith is this. Faith doesn't promise that I won't face storms, but that I can face storms by fixing my eyes on Jesus. Once Peter got out of the boat, <laughs> there he was standing on the water just like Jesus. Then he began to notice. Notice the size of the waves. Notice the howling of the wind. And it says in verse 30, when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and he began to sink. So, you may not have a promise of a, of a storm-free life, but with your eyes fixed on Jesus, you know that you can face your storms. And the fact that you're facing storms, financial storms, relationship storms, or any other kind of faith crisis that demands you to walk even when you don't have the whole picture, the disciple knows they can trust because Jesus is there and he's calling them forward. You know... Think about my ministry here at Preston Crest and our ministry together. And when I think about what I feel that, like we're called to do here, I mean, I, I certainly don't feel like we're called to fill up buildings on Sunday mornings. I don't feel like that is at the center of our mission. I mean, I, I feel like we are called to, to connect to the lost around us. I feel like we are called to connect with the generation that's coming up. 
And I feel like if we fix our eyes on Jesus in faith, then God will unleash his power here among us and and unleash it in ways that are beyond our imagination, frankly. But I know this because I see it in churches all over the place. If, If we are afraid of choppy waters... If we prefer to stay in in the boat, well, if we don't, if our fears keep us from joining Jesus in his adventure, in his kingdom, then all bets are off, right? Does that make sense? There are versions of Christianity that are essentially stripped of power, and we see these all of the time. Um, One version basically believes that Christianity is about a couple of hours a week, you know, going to a church, listening to a sermon, singing some, some songs. That is essentially what Christianity is. Um, there, there, there's another version that you may have seen recently, um, and, and it can either be a Republican version or a Democrat version, depending on who you talk to, that Jesus is a Republican or Jesus is a Democrat, and it is a political version of Christianity. It, too, is, is stripped of power. It is the same thing that, that his disciples tried to do with him during his ministry on earth, to turn him into a political figure, right? And there is another version of Christianity that is, is stripped of power, and it goes like this. Jesus saved me, hallelujah. Now it's up to me. Jesus saved me. Now it's up to me. Look, it never was up to you, and it can't be up to you. It never will be up to you. Your salvation, yes, was accomplished by the gospel, was accomplished by what Jesus did for you on the cross. And your part then and now is to trust in that work. So write this down with me. Faith reminds me, faith reminds me that my performance doesn't save me. Faith reminds me that my performance doesn't save me, but only the love and grace of Jesus. It is essentially the call that Peter makes, save me, Lord. I mean, that's a prayer you can pray every day. Because if you are to be saved, it's only because Jesus is doing the saving, not yourself. Paul reminded these good folks in Ephesus of this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul tells them, look, it is by grace. Grace, charis, is literally translated into English as gift. So it is by the gift, it is by the grace, the charis of God, the charity of God, that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is, again, the kadis. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that nobody can boast, so that nobody can say, look at at what I've done. Look at how I've saved myself. Paul says, not an option. Your salvation is solely dependent on the work of Jesus Christ. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking what, what many people have thought before. Hang on a second then I do nothing. Then I I can simply be the same person I've always been. And that is a gross misunderstanding of the power of God's grace. 
And I think Paul, anticipating that, immediately goes into the transformational power of grace. Because in the next verse, he says in Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are God's workmanship. He, he made us what we are. We are cre- created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So understanding that this prayer that Jesus or that that Peter prays on the lake, save me, Lord, understanding that this prayer is your only plea, is my only plea, this frees us from miserable dependence on my own performance on your own spiritual performance. It frees us to move boldly into obedience and into the good works that God has mapped out for us. It does not move us into fear. It does not move us into complacency. Paul is right. It moves us into this work that God has prepared for us. And so disciples are fueled by their gratitude They are moved by the Spirit who dwells in them, and nothing will hold them back from God's amazing plan for their life. Are disciples afraid? Well, certainly they walk in the fear of the Lord. I do think they're afraid of one thing. I think a disciple is afraid of missing out on what God has planned for them. They're afraid of that, and so they don't stay in the boat. They don't stay in the boat. All right. The next thing I want you to write down is this. We see this at the end of the story. Faith draws me to praise Jesus. All of them are praising Jesus at the end of this story. It says in verse 33, then the disciples worshiped him You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. And there is never a wrong moment to praise Jesus. There just isn't. In victory, in defeat, in life, in death, we know that God is at work. He's at work in the visible. He's at work in the plans that we see. He's at work in the mystery. He's at work in the plans that we do not see. He is accomplishing his work, and we submit to that, we yield to that, and we worship him no matter what storms we face. And so God, he holds the keys of life and death, or as Revelation says, Jesus holds the keys of hell and life and death. Present and the future are in his strong hands. And so we we trust that and we praise him because of that. And I think all of this to me, as I'm thinking about this story, all of this calls me to ask this question. You know, what boat is it that the Lord is asking me to climb out of? What boat is it? The safe place where you're seeking protection the safe place where you're kind of holed up there, what boat is it that God is calling you out of? Where is that safe place that God is inviting you to leave so that you can join in his flow in this dangerous world? Maybe it's a relationship decision. Maybe it's a career decision. 
Maybe it is about your finances. Maybe it's about your giving. Maybe it's a ministry that God has been calling you to for a long time, and you simply have not given him an answer. What boat is it that you need to climb out of today so that you can climb into the flow of God? And that's between you and Jesus. Nobody can make that decision to climb out of that boat except you. Now, for some of us, that decision actually means stepping out into the waters of baptism. Baptism represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when a believer puts on Christ in baptism, they are putting on the work that Jesus accomplished for them through his death, burial, and resurrection. When someone is baptized in the name of Jesus, they are immersing themselves in the gospel story. And saying this, no longer in my life, will my small story prevail because I have been joined with the great story, with the story of God.